2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning, verse 15. We'll begin reading at verse 15 and go all the way through verse 20. Nathan departed unto his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David and was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. I want to look at David here in the circumstance he had sinned, uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet had confronted him. He had repented, but God said there's still a consequence. As a result, his child became sick. David threw himself upon the mercy of God. The Bible tells us for seven days he fasted and prayed. Those around him became worried. He wouldn't come up off the floor. They came in, the Bible says, to pick him up off the earth, to try to feed him some bread to encourage him. But he laid there and begged God for the life of that child. And the Bible says after seven days, that child died. And as soon as he did, David got up, washed himself, went to the house of God and worshipped. As we study this passage this morning, I want to look at a few simple thoughts on faith and prayer and fasting. That's our theme this year. I want to continue on that theme, but speaking of prayer and thinking on that subject, we really as Christians do not understand the importance of prayer and how much it is needed in our lives, how much really it's a barometer of how we're doing spiritually. There are so many things in life that we can do not even being right with God, but prayer is one of those things that demands that we become right with God. If you see the circumstance here, David had committed this sin and distanced himself from God for at least a year. He had had a man killed. He had taken another man's wife. He had committed adultery. And David, the, the sweet psalmist, David, the man that we see so intimate with God now, we see that relationship is broken and it's prayer that restores that relationship. Now, when we talk about prayer for a few minutes, I think too often we think of prayer only in the terms of giving and receiving. We think, well, if I do this, then God will reward me. We almost see God as a genie in a bottle. We see God as someone who can meet our needs and our desires and our wants. And we don't understand prayer is really about getting right with God, staying right with God fellowship with God and we have a generation of Christians that instead of dealing with sin has just learned to cover it, hide it, deny it, excuse it, ignore it and if anything's revealed the more adamantly we deny it and here David is confronted by the prophet 
he confesses his sin and too often I've I've heard people pray and too rarely have I heard any confession of sin or any personal clearing. And before you ever take steps in your prayer, whether it's intercessory prayer, praying for your own personal needs, the first thing you need to do is make sure your heart is clean before God. Here's what David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we tend to think that we can live a spiritual life without involving prayer. Boy, we should pray and pray and pray and pray some more. I wonder, honestly, how rare it is for the average person to pray and fast and fast and pray. Seven days. Now imagine this. Seven days, David was on the floor, on his face, begging God. He didn't get up to eat, didn't get up to lay in his bed, didn't get up for any other activities. For seven days, he laid on an earthen floor, begging God to do a miracle. And here's what he says in verse 22. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, who can tell? You just don't know. Here's the thing about prayer. You just don't know what God can do, will do, might do on your behalf if you would get serious when it comes to prayer. I remember years ago, one of the first couples that we went to the Lord in Mexico, the dad got saved and the boys got saved. And the daughter got saved. They began going to church. The mom was a staunch Catholic, didn't want to have anything to do with us. And... Uh, actually made life very difficult for those children as they tried to attend church, but they were faithful despite the difficulties. And she was teaching uh, some catechism classes at a Catholic church and heavily involved. But over the years, we had opportunities to witness her and talk to her, and she'd occasionally come to church, probably on three or four occasions that she came to church. Halfway through the service, she would get up, fold her arms, and huff out stomp out of the auditorium making a scene, making it clear that she was angry with something that was said or something that was done. And I told Hector and Oscar, I said, listen, you just got to pray for your mama and you got to love her and witness her. Who can tell what might happen in her life? And last year, she finally came to a service where the gospel was preached and she sat through the whole service. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of her heart and she got born again. That was at least 10 or 11 years of praying in patience and investing in her. And those kids witnessing and, and talking to her repeatedly. I think too often we get impatient with prayer and we think God's supposed to work on our timetable and do things exactly the way we want them done. And if he doesn't, we give up. What could be accomplished in God's work, if God's people were serious about prayer. Here he lays on his face before God and he prays. Now, the first thing he did when he was confronted by Nathan, he says, I'm the one, I'm the man. I have sinned. Go with me to Psalms 51. Keep your finger here in 2 Samuel 12 because we'll be coming back. But prayer revolves around us making things right with God. 
you to think for a moment about your prayer life. When you pray, do you go right into requests? Or maybe say a word of praise and express a moment of gratitude, and then immediately you begin asking God, you take out your long list. Prayer's not about God blessing those missionaries in Africa or giving you everything on your wish list, but rather about establishing lines of communication, a door of fellowship. Did you know relationships revolve around communication? How many of you got married and realized that? And when communication is hurt, the relationship is hurt. And so it is with our relationship with God. Here's what David did. Now, here's what we think because of Psalms 23. We imagine David out there on the river playing his harp and reciting these psalms. Psalms 51, now I'm not saying he never played his harp on the river bed and sang these songs, but I'm saying in this case, definitely he was not on the river. He was flat on his face before God. And he's having his confession recorded. Look what it says in verse 1. Have mercy upon me. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever prayed through Psalms 51? How many of you ever found yourself in a spot and God had so convicted your heart, your soul over a sin, you lay on the ground and you wept? I don't know how many times I've opened this up. I just wanted a clean heart. I wanted God to bring revival. I wanted God's blessing in my life. I wanted the Spirit's filling. And I read and reread and I prayed this psalm. Oh, God. I don't want to be your spiritual leader knowing that you're following someone who has hidden sins or something in his life that should not be there. Here's what David said. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercy. You know one of the smartest things you can do as a Christian? Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Look what he says in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly. From mine iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Now, here's what a hypocrite says. Let me just wash the exterior. Let me just change my clothes. Let me maintain an appearance that's acceptable to those around me. That's not what David was doing. David said, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Now, this isn't something that we should wait once a year to pray or do. Confession should be a normal part of our daily lives when we get on our face before God and said, I just want a clean heart. Did you know your mate needs to be married to someone with a clean heart? Your kiddos need parents with a clean heart. Those that you work with on a daily basis need a Christian with a clean heart. We don't need another Christian living a double life hiding sins, doing things on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday that they know is unacceptable to God while putting a face on Sunday and giving the appearance, I'm okay, look at me. David is cleansing his soul. Verse 3, I acknowledge, this is the first step, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And let me just say this, there's nothing worse than you can do than just put it off and drag it along and live with sin. Now, this, this is the normal in Christianity today. People commit sin and just live with it, become accustomed to it. How many of you have ever committed a sin 
and it just bothered you. It bothered you to the depths of your soul. Now, here's, here's what I don't want to do. I've had that feeling before. I knew I did wrong. I knew there was something that displeased God. Uh, I knew I'd affected someone or if not a person, God, my relationship had been hurt. My fellowship had been broken. That's a disturbing feeling. Now, to, to justify it, to not make it right, and then you begin to go day after day, week after week, month after month, the next thing you know, you're so distant from God and the Holy Spirit, conviction and a love for this book, and you look back and say, wow, how did I get in this place? When David had sinned, he'd, he had a man killed, Ahithophel, his chief counsel, David committed adultery with his granddaughter. Everything is messed up and mixed up in this home. And for a year, I can't imagine this, hiding this sin and living with his conscience and being this distant from God for a year until finally the man of God comes. And this is what we don't like. When someone comes and points their finger in our face and says, you need to make things right. We don't like that. And that's what this man of God did. Stuck his finger out, pointed it in David's face and said, Thou art the man. David's laying on his face before God, making things right. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5 and 6. I need you to understand how much of prayer is about simply getting things right with God. Staying right with God. And if prayer is not a normal part of your life, you can't be right with God. You can go through the motions. You can even maintain the appearance. And there's nothing scarier for the Christian than learning to be an actor, learning to put more emphasis on the exterior than the interior, learning to maintain a facade, learning in pride. Now, this is pride. This is satanic. What is it that caused Satan to be cast out of heaven? It was pride and as Christians, it's easy to want to look good, maintain an appearance. So instead of making things right, we just wash the exterior, put on a front, please people, appear to be okay when we know inside things are simply not right. That's what David did for a year. And prayer is about you cleaning up on the inside. Now, here's what you can do. You can still maintain the status quo. You can still be busy in the ministry. You can still attend church. But you will not be praying on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday in private if you're not right with God. How was your prayer life on Monday? So tell me about your walk with God. Tell me how much time you spent alone with God on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I know you can look nice on Sunday, and I know you walk around and greet people, maintain a smile, and, and look as if everything is okay. But I'm not talking about how you appear. I'm talking about how is your personal relationship with God throughout the week. Look what it says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar. Go thy way. Mark these words. 
What's it say? First be reconciled. Folks, we, we've gotten so distant from this book that we've, we've really made Christianity a set of rules. We've made Christianity church attendance. We've made Christianity appearances. And God is still concerned with the heart. And he said, David, you may have fooled an entire kingdom, but I know you've committed adultery. I'm going to take your son. You have to pay a consequence. But more important than that, you need to start by making things right with me, cleansing yourself. How is it? Now, listen, if our prayer life is affected, it is because there's sin involved. Normally, it's there's, there's a conflict with another person. Maybe it's with your mate, another church member, your boss. You haven't made things right. And God said, listen, before you put offering that plate, before you come to serve, before you go back to your ministry, before you lay your head down on your pillow at night, first be reconciled. Now, here's the problem, because you can't have communion with God if there's something messed up in your relationships. Let's go to Matthew 6, the model prayer. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jump to verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So you can't have a relationship with God. You can't pray while you're having conflict with someone else. And too often, I've watched Christians, they can't even greet each other. They can't even look at each other. They can't even walk down the same hallway, hit the same church. They can't sit on the same side of the auditorium. You have no walk with God. Because God says, if you're not right with your brother, you're not right with me. If you haven't forgiven your brother, I can't forgive you. He said, before you bring a sacrifice, before you make a pledge, before you sing a song, before you play the piano, before you sing in the choir, before you help in the club ministry, before you do anything, first be reconciled. First. Well, I'm still attending church. God said before you go to church, first be reconciled. Well, I'm going to sit through another service. First be reconciled. Well, I keep giving my tithe. God said before you put that money in the plate. Now, listen, he didn't say take your gift, put it back in your pocket, walk home and be reconciled because you may change your mind on the way home. He said leave your gift at the altar in case you change your mind. He said just leave it there at the altar and go be reconciled. Here's what we don't like. We want to do all these things to maintain an image. And God says, I see your heart. So first be reconciled. Amen. This is probably one of the most disobeyed verses in all the Bible. I wonder how many people will serve in the house of God today that haven't even been reconciled with their brother. The Bible still says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. How many people have laid their head down on their pillow at night and they're angry with someone, they're hurt, they're offended, they're growing bitter and frustrated because someone said something, someone mistreated them, someone lied about them, someone confronted them, someone hurt them, someone made a phone call. Now I'm angry. God said, be careful. Before you... 
go back to your ministry, before you go soul winning on Saturday mornings, before you walk into church on Wednesday night, and go back to your ministry, before you jump into that nursery, before you shake another hand, first be reconciled. If you leave with one thought in your heart, in your mind from this service this morning, I hope it's these three words, first be reconciled. Before you put on your tie and bring in your Bible and sit in that pew and raise your hand and glorify God, first be reconciled. Before you say, Pastor, I want to help. Pastor, I want to be a blessing. Pastor, I want to give something to the building fund. Before you do any of that, what is the first thing God says to do? Because God says, we can't have a relationship until your relationship with those around you are right. You are deceiving yourself to think that you can pray, that you can have fellowship with God, you can have regular communion with your Father if you're not even reconciled to those around you. And here's what David had to do. He had to make things right. He had to first be reconciled. There's Bathsheba, there's that awkward relationship. Every time they see Ahithophel, they know that they've committed sin and nothing's been made right. And now she's pregnant, now she's with child. And everybody in the palace is trying to hush-hush and everyone's trying to overlook this sin and no one knows how to treat him. He is the king. He gets to make the laws. He gets to determine the consequences. No one, everyone feels awkward. You know, when you sin, you create a lot of awkwardness. That's why God says, first be reconciled. And here's what David did. He threw himself down on the altar of God's grace. And there's nothing more beautiful in all of the world than watching people make things right with God. I've sat in services, watched people as they came angry and resisted the Holy Spirit month after month after month. And at some point, finally, God broke through and the Holy Spirit got their attention. And you watch as they came forward and threw themselves upon the altar made things right with God. There's nothing more beautiful in all the world. That's why I enjoy camp, because you watch teens making things right with God. That's why I enjoy revivals and special services when you watch people making things right with God. But that is not normal. That is not ordinary. Usually, we're resisting. Only hurting ourselves. Because God wants a personal relationship with you, but he can't have a personal relationship with you when communion is broken, and communion is broken when your relationship with others is not right. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, my relationship with 95% of the church is right. Um, there's no 95% clause in the Bible. It doesn't say first be reconciled with thy brothers, with thy brethren. It says first be reconciled with thy brother singular if there's one I don't care if there's 350 people in church if there's one that you're not right with God said first make it right with them first be reconciled let me ask you this how many times have you sat in a church service how many times have you given an offering how many times have you participated in a ministry and you weren't even right with those around you God says first be reconciled well, pastor, you've got to understand everything else in my life is right. No, everything else in your life is wrong. It can't be right. 
If your relationship with your children or your mate or your pastor or your co-workers or those around you or your brethren, your family, if it's not right, your relationship with God is not right. Now listen, you can't change their heart. You can't make them want to be reconciled. But here's what you can do. You can go make things as right as possible. You can say, I messed up. I goofed up. I'm sorry if I offended you. I simply want to be right with you. There are people that have been upset with me before. I've had people, revivals, come to me and say, Preacher, I've been mad at you for two years. And I tell them, I'm sorry. I have not been mad at you. I don't share the grudge. I haven't harbored the bitterness. I'm good. Do you forgive me? You already, it's already forgiven. It's under the blood. Well, preacher, do you want to know what I was mad about? Nope, don't even care to know. No need to discuss the details. It's over. It's under the blood. But why in the world would you mess up your walk with God, your Christian life, withhold the blessings, and put obstacles in God's blessing on your ministry because you're upset about something that was said or done or pain that was inflicted. Here's the problem. If you don't learn to get over that, if you don't learn to forgive, if you don't make forgiveness a daily part of your life, that means you cannot maintain a relationship with God. First, be reconciled. Then go do everything else. So you know what you got to do in the morning? Just to make sure you're obeying this verse and you have a relationship with God, first thing you ought to do, wake up, say, God, if there's any ought in my heart, if there's any conflict between me and another brother, if there's any problem, I want to make it clear, I want to make it clean, I want to confess, I want to make this thing right so I can be blessed by you and we can talk all day long and not even have it interrupted by an angry thought because of what that dirty, low-down, no-good scoundrel did to me. Did you see what you just did? You just broke fellowship. God says, I can't even participate in this conversation. 2 Samuel 12. Sin had broken his relationship. David is making things right. This is what prayer is about. Prayer is about confession and soul cleansing and a personal relationship with God. I'm convinced of this, that the average Christian can never really be on spiritual track because prayer is not about the giver but about the gifts. I want you to think about your own life for a minute. What is it that satisfies you the most in prayer? God, your relationship with God, or the gifts? Because this is where people go off track. If your satisfaction doesn't come from the fact that I get to be with God and I get to walk with God and I get to talk with God, And folks, when you learn this in life, these will become the best moments of your spiritual life. Really, we've reached a very shallow time in Christianity. used to be that there was a need to pray because there were needs in life. It was persecution that Christians were suffering or daily needs. The fact they couldn't even provide their own bread, they, they truly were dependent upon and relying upon God. But now that we have excess and now there is no persecution, now we have such an easy life, there is no really drastic need that forces us to pray. So prayer is really just something off 
you know, it's out there. I know I can use it if there's a tragedy, if there's a problem, if there's a heartache, if there's a need. Then I will stoop to pray. Prayer ought to be a normal, regular part of our lives. Christian, if your prayer closet doesn't regularly see you there, if you haven't found a time and a place and included prayer in your regular daily schedule, even in the busyness of life, I have four or five places uh, in between here in Buda that are designated places for prayer. Now, summer doesn't help me out because when I pray, I like to walk. In the summer months, it's just miserable and you just get out there and sweat. It just drips off your face. So I would prefer air-conditioned places to pray. It helps me concentrate and keeps me from complaining about the heat. Makes it easier to praise God and be thankful. But you ought to have normal, regular, set times and places where you pray. But if your Christianity is like modern-day Christianity, where everything is about us and me and God, how are you going to bless me and give to me and help me? You better be careful because your prayer becomes about the gift instead of about the presence of God. And when that happens, that means very shortly you won't be concerned about the source, simply the blessing. Because everything's about the gift and not the giver. Because everything's about what God can bless me with instead of me being having a personal relationship with God. Now your only concern is about the blessing and the gift. You don't care who that comes from as long as you're blessed. And when Satan knows that, Satan says, I'll bless you. And this world says, I'll bless you. And then I watch people say, oh, I've got God's blessing on my life. No, that didn't come from God. You better be careful. Because the source does matter. Who has provided that house? Who has provided that car? Who has provided those luxuries? Who has provided those blessings for you in your life and I've watched people try to put God's face on their blessing God didn't have anything to do with that God's blessed me with a new job although it put me in a city where there's no good church although it's made me work on a Sunday when I know that's God that's not God's blessing the problem was you're more in love with the gift than you were with God's presence so as soon as you found another source that could give you just as much as God you made that source your God. How many people have turned from God because they were never in love with God's presence, they were in love with God's gifts. So as soon as there was another source that produced greater gifts than God did, they changed their God to a greater source. You better listen to that. Because that is Satan's biggest trick in 2013. The materialism that is sweeping our hearts and sweeping our churches. Not sweeping our nation. We already know that. Come on. You got to expect carnal man to live off the carnal. But when we find it in the children of God, in our number one concern is, where are the gifts, God? Here's what we've done. We've made prayer all about 
the answer, the response, the blessing. We live like the Jews, an adulterous generation that is constantly seeking a sign. God give me a gift and God answer my prayer. And here's what David did when he got down on his face and prayed, be careful, be careful. Because you would think in your heart David was praying for the life of his child. No, he was saying, who can tell if God will have mercy? But he did not become angry at God when that child died. He did not say, you didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. You did not respond to how I set things out to be. What's wrong with you, God? He was not about the gift, but the giver. He said, God, I can be satisfied with the way you respond, no matter how you respond, that's not the way the average Christian responds. We set our guidelines and we tell God, this is what I need and this is how much I need and this is when I need it. And if you don't do it that way, I'm going to formulate another plan and provide my own solution. It wasn't David. Now be careful. We're talking about simple facts concerning prayer and faith and fasting. There's a God in heaven that sees the big picture. How many of you ever flown over Austin? Perspective is totally different from up there, isn't it? Things don't look as big. The frost tower looks about this big. You know what we've done in life? We've made things from our view look enormous. God says, it's about this big. Not an issue, not a problem. Here's what David did. He threw himself down on that floor and he wept and he prayed. And he said, I want that child to live. God, would you heal my child? Would you save my child? Would you do a miracle for me? Listen, for seven days, the tears rolled down his cheeks. He had dirt on his clothes. He lost weight. His hair was matted and greasy. Seven days, he hadn't washed. His beard had grown. And the people around him became concerned. And they said, what if this child dies? Because they listened. They were curious. They had heard his prayers. They had heard him weep. They had listened to his cry and they said, that man is desperate that his son doesn't die and every day that boy got worse, that baby got worse to at some point the doctor looked over and said, he stopped breathing, he's gone, we've got to tell David. And what did the servant say? He looked around and said, who's, who's going to go tell him? I don't want that duty, I don't want that job. If David is this heartbroken, if David hasn't eaten in seven days praying for the life of his child, how will he respond now that his child is gone? What's verse 20 tell us he did? And finally, one of those servants had enough courage to walk in and say, tap him on the shoulder, see, lay on that floor and say, David, I'm sorry, but your child is dead. David said, thank you. He got up, he wiped his face, he took a shower and he shaved his beard and he worshiped. What did the servant say? I have never seen anything stranger in my life. We have never seen anything stranger in our lives. How is it that he was that desperate? How is it that he wept and he cried and he prayed and now that the child is dead, he's fine? You know why? Because his prayer was about his relationship. His prayer was about his fellowship. His prayer was about the giver of life, not the gift of life. Prayer was, God, who can tell if you'd have mercy? I know you pronounce judgment, but God, if you would be gracious and show mercy, I would really appreciate it. God said, there's a consequence, David. You have to pay that consequence. And David said, 
I'm fine with that too. I just want my relationship with you to be right. Now, we're getting to the message. God did answer his prayer. I want you to think about this for a minute. Go back with me to verse 20. So here's David laying on his face before God, begging for the life of that child. When they tell him the news, he gets up, worships, verse 21, then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? Now that he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And let me ask you this. What was the key phrase in David's prayer? Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? That was his prayer. How many ever prayed that way? God, maybe it was after a sin. Maybe it was a need. Maybe it was something that you didn't deserve. Maybe you were dealing with heartache, tragedy. Maybe you needed a miracle. You know, you pray. God, if, if you just be gracious to me, I don't deserve that. Maybe I don't even need it. God, I've got to go through this, and I don't know how I'm going to go through this. Would you give me the grace? Now, let me ask you this. Speaking of grace and the grace of God and the graciousness of God, if David, loving this child and loving this woman and having spent seven days, how many in here could say in all honesty that you have been in such a situation that you lay on the ground for seven days? You laid on the ground for seven days without moving, without even eating, without showering, begging God to do something supernatural on your behalf. David was serious. But what was his prayer? God, if you'd show a little grace, then let me ask you this. Did God answer that prayer? You say, well, the baby died. It's still grace. Because David, you deserve to die. You know what the Old Testament law demanded for adultery? Death. So David, guess what? God said, I'm going to be so gracious, I'm not going to take your life. Now hold on for a second, there was more grace here. There was grace enough that God said, David, I'm going to allow you to get up and still be used. David, I'm still going to restore a relationship with you. That's grace. But what about this? Have you ever had a tragedy strike? Can you imagine your baby dying? You're looking there at your dead child, and God has given him so much grace that he can get up, wash his hands, and worship? Oh, I think God's answering his prayer. It's just that God sees things in the bigger picture and God has a broader perspective and God is saying, David, I'm going to answer your prayer not according to the terms you set because you set the terms of let my child live. But I'm looking at the bigger picture, Dave. I'm going to show enough grace. I'm going to take your child to heaven. But hold on for a second. There was more grace. Go back to 2 Samuel 12. Look at the next verse. So David goes into Bathsheba Look what the Bible says. And they have a child. She bears a son. He called his name Solomon. And the Lord 
loved him. It doesn't say the Lord loved David, although he did. The Lord loved the child that was a result of an adulterous affair that caused the death of her husband Uriah. Tell me, that's not grace. Do you remember David's prayer? What was David's prayer? God, would you show grace? Now, could his prayer have been answered in a greater way than what we're seeing right here? Let's see, David, you live. Let's see, David, you have enough grace that you can deal with this and still worship God. Let's see, David, God shows enough grace that he keeps this marriage together. He blesses it in the child that results is loved, specifically stated, loved by God. And you know what your thoughts were, David? I want a child that can inherit the throne. Well, guess what you just had, David? A child by Bathsheba. You both should be dead. But you just had a child that'll be the next king. Did God answer his prayer? Yes. 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 And yes, now David didn't know that at the moment. David didn't know Solomon was going to be the wisest man that ever lived. David didn't know this young child was going to be the next king. God had already chosen him and loved him. Would give him the special gift of wisdom. That's grace. Now, when you fast and when you pray, be careful. Because what you are so determined that God should do may not be the right thing over the long haul. And God knows. So God says, while you're there praying for that job and looking at that opportunity and saying, God, if you would just do this. I remember in Mexico, several groups came down and maybe some of you even went with us. There were several pieces of property as we're looking for property that we wanted for a building. I remember one piece of property for months. We went out and lay in that dirt and we prayed for God to bless and open the door and give us that property. And God shut the door. And God shut the other door and then the next door and every door that was open, he shut every one. And I was praying specifically, God, this is the place, this is the land, this is the ideal peace, this is where we need to grow. God, this is the timing. This, everything said, God, I understand. Why is it that you don't understand? This is it. God didn't understand. And years passed. And one day a piece of land on a dirt road came up for sale. And God gave it to us. And the next thing you know, it's paved and becomes one of the prettiest streets in our part of town. And the governor puts his name on that street. And it's okay, God. You had it all planned, but you could have at least told me. We didn't have to go through the whole argument. I didn't have to lay in that property for six months on my face in the dirt. I didn't have to bring all those people over there and tell them this is the spot. It sure would have helped if you would have just said something beforehand, you know. Have you ever prayed like that? You ever prayed and got disappointed and then you realize God never intended things to go that way at all? God had a totally different direction. And I know this seems overly simplified this morning. But really when it comes to prayer, there's a lot of confusion. Prayer is about you making things right with God, your personal fellowship. 
not about the gift. It's about the person. It's about the relationship. And remember these two things. If it's about the gift, it won't be long. Satan, Satan can identify that in a heartbeat. And if it's about the gift, God will be pushed aside when Satan provides a better source. Be careful, that source will always pull you away from God. But when your eyes are on the trinkets, when your eyes are on the treasure, when your eye is on the size of the blessing, when you take a tape measure out, you measure God's goodness every day by the gifts you receive, the size of your salary, the bedrooms in your house, the value of your car, that's not the way God works. You don't know God at all. God is about a relationship. You're not careful. Soon as Satan sees that, he says, they're not even concerned with the source at all. Have you ever had someone when you were at the library or the car wash or the grocery store pull up, pop their trunk and say, you know, we just installed a sound system here and put up some speakers the business next door. We had just had some stuff left over and sell it to you real cheap. Anybody ever had that happen? Why didn't you buy it? What was your number one concern? The source. You wanted the speakers. You wanted the sound system. You wanted the discount. You wanted the bargain. But the source was a red flag. Why is it that when God's blessing you, Satan pulls up and pops a trunk says, hey, man, I got some good merchandise here at a cheap price. You say, man, look at the door God opened. I've been praying for a stereo system. And looking right there. $15 for a Bose stereo. Brand new in the box. Yeah. You better consider the source. You better take a look and say, God wants to have a relationship with me and Christianity is not about all these blessings that is being provided. And when I pray, I better understand. God has a bigger plan. God knows what I need, what I don't need, when I need it, and how I need it. David was smart enough. He'd made things right. Thankfully, he'd made things right at this point. Because when he got up off his knees and he worshiped, he said, I don't understand why that baby died. Not totally. Why God had to take his life and not my life? But here's what I will do. I will trust God. My relationship's been broken for over a year. I want that relationship restored. I'm going to go make sure I'm reconciled with my father-in-law, my wife, with my God. You see a great turning point in David's life because of prayer, faith, and fasting. 